Welcome to Queer Lodgings, the queer-led podcast about everything Tolkien. I'm Leah, and I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Alicia. Hello. And Grace. Hi. Let's have a seat at the high table of Rivendell, pour ourselves a glass of Miruvor, and get ready to seek counsel and talk about queer stuff with some of the lore masters of Middle-earth. Scholars whose work in Tolkien studies we've all been reading and admiring for years. And personally, I kind of can't believe that we're talking with them and becoming pod pals with them. Today, we are very excited to talk with the three co-editors of the forthcoming book, There Are Many Paths to Tread, Queer Approaches to Tolkien's Middle Earth, which will be forthcoming in early 2025. Robin Reed, Chris Vaccaro, and Steve Yandel we're so glad to have you all here. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yay. So before we get started, can all three of you introduce yourselves with your name, your pronouns, and tell us a little bit about yourselves for our audience? Okay, well, I've been doing everything alphabetically, and since it's so rare for me to be the first in an alphabetical group, I kind of gloat about it. It's so much fun. I'm Robin my pronouns, she or they, are equally appropriate because autist is not a pronoun. And, you know, this is something we need to fix, but nobody has. <laughs> I'm actually happily retired. I escaped from my university job in Texas in 2020. And uh, since much of what I taught and wrote during the time I was there is now illegal in Florida and maybe illegal in Texas. Uh, I figured that my sense of timing was impeccable. <laughs> my areas of interest have been feminist science fiction, what used to be called multicultural and is now called marginalized literatures, uh, and especially critical theory approaches, queer feminist and intersectional, and also with critical race connected with those. And I started doing Tolkien scholarship after Peter Jackson's film sucked me back into the Tolkienverse. Wonderful. Um, I guess I'll go next. My name is Chris Vaccaro. Pronoun-wise, you know, I have this thing about the pronouns. He works fine. They is fine. She is fine. Whatever you really want to use is just wonderful for me, right? And my friends do use all of the above. I teach at the University of Vermont, where I've been since 1999, and I've been teaching Tolkien classes there since 2002. Did my very first publication in 2004 on, like, the white tree. And then, uh, well, anyway, that's the, that's the history. Currently, I am working on queer studies, feminist theory, eco-criticism, kind of merger of all those and i'm currently working on not only this book on queer talking but a book on sadomasochistic theory and Beowulf. so that's me Ooh. hi i'm stevie andell really pleased that you are uh, allowing us to talk on your podcast these are the topics we think about every day <laughs> i've just finished year 20 at Xavier university in cincinnati where i teach in the english department it sounds like Chris and I started our Tolkien classes about the same time. So when I got there in 03, I started teaching a Tolkien course along with medieval literature that I most often teach. This past July, I moved into 
an associate dean position at the university. I hardly know what I'm doing. It is a crazy position to be in. My jump into Tolkien, I grew up in this, I don't know how much we're re revealing up front, but I grew up in this evangelical family. So reading Tolkien and Lewis was uh, really common for us. And I actually published more in Lewis before I turned to Tolkien. I was able to go to this Tolkien Centenary Conference in 92, where we met Priscilla Tolkien. She had us at her house. Uh, we met Christopher Tolkien. I got to meet two of his, uh, his son and daughter. And that it was very easy to then move into, as we all know, Tolkien is queer. Queerness is part of humanity. And so I'm pleased that the Tolkien Scholarship continues with this book. I also do work in medieval lit with medieval prophecy, Middle Welsh. And I've also been doing work on medievalism and the Disney parks, which is not at all related, but I think intersects with popular culture. Yeah, I'm super into that. Thank you guys so much for introducing yourselves. So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about this anthology some more. I understand that this sort of emerged out of the far-right backlash against the Tolkien Society's Tolkien and Diversity Seminar, or at least those attacks really punctuated and inspired, uh, shall we say, the urgency of this collection. Can you tell us a little bit about how you three came together to work on this and some of your motivations behind it? Well, I sort of started it off because, and it was in 2017, although obviously what happened in 2021 made very clear what we already knew was happening. Mm. Actually, the major inspiration for it was Jane Chance's first monograph on Tolkien. It does many wonderful things, but it's looking at queerness as alterity, as difference. And then, of course, Chris and Yvette's Tolkien and Alterity came out, and another wonderful piece. But both of those focused on alterity in that one definition of queer. And I wanted something that did much more queer work, and especially with regard to queer women, non-binary, trans issues. And I said, golly, I need to do this. On the other hand, I am not a medievalist. And I know there was this whole queer medievalism that was developing from Tyson Pugh. I said, who do I know who's a medievalist and likely to do queer theory? So I wrote Chris and Steve and they said, yay. And we started working on it. And then COVID came, which is why it's taken so long. <laughs> uh, but we did get far enough that when the Tolkien and Diversity Call for Papers came out, we said, woohoo, let's a whole bunch of us sent in proposals. And yeah, then the backlash happened. And at that point, on the other hand, we also picked up a couple of really amazing new chapters from the Tolkien and Diversity. So it, it worked out well in terms of that, that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So I think Although it's taken longer than we would like, it was worth it because it's going to be better. Yeah, I, I want to touch on the backlash to Tolkien and diversity a little bit because we have spoken a lot on this podcast just generally around uh, shithead alt-right people coming in and abusing uh, Tolkien right. scholars and fans. But like this particular incident was very widespread in the first time that I can remember that 
an organized group of scholars and fans were attacked quite in this way. And it's something that has kind of perpetuated since then. So what ended up happening was the Tolkien Society ran a Tolkien and diversity seminar where there were a lot of people who were presenting on shit that we would really like, honestly, like uh, queer things, looking at marginalized races, that sort of thing. And there was a group of incredibly angry conservative people who read the titles to some of the papers and started a concentrated campaign to shame the Tolkien Society, essentially, for hosting this and besmirching Tolkien's name. Yeah. I think our collection grew out of this same impetus that the conferences have grown out of. Mm. There, we, we all know Tolkien scholarship has been around for a long time. And for the most part, folks were fine with saying, you know, Tolkien scholarship could be very conservative. They just weren't interested in queer things. And there was a lot of queer scholarship. There's so much going on. There wasn't much attention paid to Tolkien. And so once the Tolkien scholars said, you know, some of whom are queer, said, let's start doing this. And the queer theorists pointed their eye toward Tolkien. That's when everybody's tackles got raised. I don't know what the metaphor is. And we, I remember when we came together, we're three friends. We didn't know each other so well through Kalamazoo. And once we saw the, the value of kind of bringing these voices together, because we all were unified by this idea that how dare you tell us where queer desire is or how to read a text. And the far right is equally adamant, like, don't you dare touch my precious Tolkien. So this kind of conflict was, I think, inevitable. But of course, queer voices are going to win in this. Yeah, you can't say, here's an author who's able to talk about humanity, but isn't talking about queerness. Yeah, 100%. Robin? <laughs> you say, go ahead, Robin. <laughs> okay, yeah, I could drop the link and you're free to share it in the chat to one of the presentations I did because, as Leah knows, especially my response to this was to start studying these people doing that. What we're talking about is unique. I mean, there was a debate, I gather, when the Tolkien and Pagan call came out from the society, but that was within the Tolkien Society's Facebooks and social media. Yeah. What happened with this, and I'm pretty sure by what the first article that was published said, Somebody sent the alt-right blogosphere the links to the call for papers. There was pushback in the Tolkien Society, social media, but of course the moderators being on the job booted all of that out. Mm -hmm. But so I, I tracked all the articles when they were published. I archived them so I don't have to link to the sites. And I did a corpus linguistic study and looked at the, the attacks on that. And it's a whole alt-right blogosphere. And although it's unique to Tolkien studies, this is not unique. Craig Franson, who does the American Id podcast, has been studying the prevalence of fascists who wanted to use Tolkien to make America great for decades. This, this started happening in the 1950s and 60s with the conservatives. Although Craig says it really took off after 9-11 when the different conservative Christian groups got together. So these attacks on big media are a standard, bog standard tactic of far-right extremists. And Craig is doing some fascinating work on it. and We'll have a book 
he's been working on a book for a while, but it, of course he started it before COVID and you know who that is. So yes, this is, this is not isolated. I mean, you, you probably know that. I mean, the attack on the Ghostbusters remake, attack on the Rings of Power, which was all Star Wars, Star Wars Wars just in general. Yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. It's all over. So we need to, I like situating it in that because as Steve says, this is the sort of thing that is going to keep happening. Yeah. I really appreciate the the plug for um, Craig Franzen's work there because it was through listening to the American Id podcast that I started being paying very careful attention to the media coverage that was happening around Tolkien and Rings of Power and everything the last couple of years and noting when authors who were writing for publications like Forbes were also cross-publishing or also publishing in like the National Review and things that were even more extreme. And then these were being very mildly sanitized as the mainstream coverage. Yeah. Or like Wall Street Journal has, you know, some crossover authors between them who write about Tolkien in different spaces and in slightly different ways. But honestly, I have noticed as the general American political atmosphere has gotten more and more extreme and things have gotten more and more permissible, even those mainstream media authors are getting a lot less difference between perhaps their National Review articles and their Wall Street Journal articles, which is really depressing. And <laughs> and um, it brings me down when I'm thinking about the state of the uh, the Tolkien community. What I'd like to emphasize about that, that Tolkien and diversity, there was a, a horrific backlash, although it disappeared pretty quickly. And it's, you know, typical of people complaining about academic titles. Totally. But everybody who was listed on the program presented their work. The Tolkien proceedings came out and they did not stop us. And the anthology is, is moving on. So. Yeah. Well, it, there, there's a big time sync difference in writing a reactionary tweet about how dare they have the word queer in this title of a paper versus actually having to sit through a presentation to come up with actual things to complain about, which is why most of the pushback we get as a podcast is about the name of our podcast and not any of the things we've ever put out there. There's hours of content you could listen to. At my university, Xavier University, there's protests about, you know, anything that upsets the the Catholic Church. And yet they've put on three productions of Angels in America that no one has protested because it includes the words angels Angels. in America. And not actually read any of the material that they <laughs> That warms my heart, uh, man. <laughs> I'm excited that this collection is going to meet that in the middle, that I, at least I know any Tolkien book that comes out, I'm going to buy it. So the, the, the fact that queer and Tolkien will be in the title together, that there'll be Tolkien fans who might not have thought about queerness are going to get this, that queer theorists who maybe haven't dipped into Tolkien are going to be introduced to it, folks in pop culture and fandom and fanfic and medieval we hope that it's going to kind of be useful to everybody oh yeah speaking of kind of bringing together a bunch of different approaches what were you guys thinking about when you were putting together the call for proposals like what sorts of approaches were you really hoping to see and yeah like what kind of perspectives were you really 
looking for when you put together the call for proposals? One of the things that I really wanted to see is more by queer women about queer women. Because if you look at a lot of the Tolkien scholarship, there's a lot of feminist stuff on Tolkien, but it's straight. And a lot of the gender and queer stuff on Tolkien is by male scholars looking at, understandably, Frodo and Sam. Mm -hmm. And so what's missing is the queer feminist work. And with all the good work that Jane's book does, it's not quite there in terms of uh, things. Her book has nine chapters and all the female characters are stuffed in one. So I wanted to see more about that. And I wanted to see more about Tolkien fan fiction, which sort of overlaps with queer women. Because yeah. Tolkien, for being one of the oldest fandoms and having the movies and the adaptations, fan studies as a discipline is not looking at Tolkien. Mm -hmm. So Chris and Steve, what were you hoping to see? Well, I know that we really wanted to bring in arguments incorporating race theory, critical race theory, and just looking at race, intersectionality, certainly with race. I had put out a book on the body in Tolkien's Legendarium uh, that did not quite cover that topic and got soundly <laughs> reminded from the community, uh, which is which was wonderful. But but it wasn't just because of that. You know, I had I had hoped to sort of correct that error. And and I know Robin and Steve are, you know, were way ahead of me on that anyway, as far as just wanting to bring in critical race theory and intersectionality. And so we really tried very hard to bring in a, you know, a, a robust sort of section that dealt with that. Though it's it's still hard, right, Robin? Right, Steve? I mean, it's it's still hard to find people who are working on that. So, you know, we're still mm -hmm. It's still an uphill battle in some ways. Well, I, I mean, it's really not there in this anthology yeah. for, for various reasons. Um, I can say, because the other anthology I'm working on is Race, Racisms in Tolkien. Right. That is not looking at any kind of intersectionality with queerness. So I think there is some stuff there in terms of longstanding systems that trying to bring together critical race and queer theory is, is hard. And of course, one of the reasons it's hard is huge percentage of people doing Tolkien studies like rest of academia are white mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah there's reasons there's lots of reasons why that's hard the time it's taken us to put this together i think has also been useful that we've it becomes clearer and clearer to us that this has to be a foundational first step every mm -hmm. one of these essays i think points in interesting directions it's almost as if we just want to get past this so we can get to the next step but it's inevitable i also felt when we came together, I've known Robin's work, I've known Chris's work, the things they're interested in, the kinds of scholars that they can get their hands on. And I, I was pleased to be part of something that I knew was going to go in areas that I just couldn't have even imagined, because I know that this collection would look radically different if any one of us was doing it on their own. And so mm. I'm pleased that, yeah, I've learned that these areas that don't get considered are going to be next to each other in these chapters. And I'm really excited to see, yeah, we'll all be reading chapters that we might not have read otherwise. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is, what if anything surprised you when papers started coming in? Did you find anything you weren't expecting or anything you're really excited for us to, to get a chance to look at when it comes out? Hmm. I'll start with some of the logistics. Uh, maybe Robin and Chris are more familiar with this, but just the, our interaction, our distant interaction with the Tolkien estate 
reminds us that this is a property. It's just not the far right that's overseeing this. They have very specific considerations about the number of words that might be quoted. And so we think we're all thinking very carefully about how we're dipping in various corners of the Tolkien corpus, how much we're actually pulling. And I hope to our benefit, it's causing all of us to say, you know, here's the part of my analysis. I don't need the lengthy quotation per se, but we go into this collection with, a, I think, a really comfortable sense of most of us, we, we're not doing any plot summaries here. We, we kind of understand this corpus. We might go a little deeper here and there, but it's time to just revel in the, the, this queerness and not concentrate on the, well, this is what Professor Tolkien said in the mighty words. Yeah. Right. Oh, my God. I have a tangenty question to that. In dealing with the estate, I vaguely know how difficult it is to get the estate's approval on some things. And I have heard some like some small trickle of murmurings about certain books that have been published lately that they will not disclose whether they have the estate's approval or not in actually publishing them. I was wondering what if you have a take on that, given your now experience with dealing with the estate. Like, do you think they have approval? <laughs> we actually need to correct. We are not dealing with the estate. Okay. Mm. What we're looking at is, and what Steve was talking about, the issue of the fair use. Mm. What is fair use to quote without having to pay the estate? Okay. And our publisher, McFarland, who is, by the way, I highly recommend McFarland as a publisher. For one thing, their books are not priced in the three figures. They do a fantastic job. They're pulling out the newest stuff. They're incredible. Our editor gave us the limits that Steve talks about, you know, quote, this much and no more, and we don't have to ask permission. Hmm. Interesting. What I've always heard is, again, if you go over that, the Tolkien, you have to go to the Tolkien estate, and they will probably ask for a, a fee. Right. There are issues, mostly when you're talking about the Tolkien estate, you're looking at needing to get permission to say quote from the not yet published material mm, that is in oh, the okay. archives, especially the Bodleian. So, I see. And I don't have anything to say about that. Berlin Flieger once sort of told me, you know, if you don't have to, don't try and get involved with uh, mm. getting the estate's official permission for anything. And that was for a research grant some of us were thinking about. So I don't know, Chris, if you want to talk about it. I know you've had some experience. I don't have much more to add. I mean, you're right. Like some presses are a bit more financially daring and so are willing to allow for more, you know, a great far greater word count. Right. But others just simply, are, you know, can't. I mean, it's just they can cease to exist. Right. And so um, and so then they have a really, really solid word count that you have to stick to, which is very hard. Then when you have a group of like 14 or 15 essays. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So it's a word count throughout yeah. the entire book. Okay. For, for various pieces, exactly. So perhaps no, no more from this. But it's, it, of course, Robin's making a crucial distinction here. We are absolutely writing this in a scholarly setting. Like yeah. this is out in popular culture. I'm so pleased that we're not trying to publish an unpublished piece or something from a letter. This is us as scholars saying this is something out there. So we, we're, we've got these guardrails that we're following, but the 
a state can say whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't think as far right as this far right group, but hey, with the, I mean, this is part of queer scholarship. We're here. We're readers. When we read this stuff, I'm not can't not read it through a queer lens. So you'd be upset all you want. So these word counts are really about just making sure that we're doing kind of what fair use rules are yeah. um, calling for us. But I'll jump in because one editorial sort of professorial thing I've always said is if you're relying on huge chunks of quotes from the primary source to make your point, why? The, the readers are familiar with Tolkien, you know, go read Lord of the Rings. If you're not analyzing or explicating the quote or doing something with it, if you're just plopping it in, that's going to be a weaker piece of academic scholarship. So now that said, in early drafts, I said to people, yeah, dump big chunks in, it's easy, but then go back and think and revise and analyze. So it's it's been a part of the process. Going back to surprise, I mean, we started this so, so long ago when it was so pre-COVID, I have a hard time remembering if I was surprised about anything at the beginning. But one thing that was a pleasant surprise and I think is going to be one of the strongest elements of this book is the number of trans readers because that's that's totally new and one of our authors uh they saw our call shared on tumblr and that's where they got in touch with us from and i was going i love that yes and so i always bug my friends like alicia and all my other cool friends who are on tumblr it's like <laughs> on tumblr please because i can't figure out tumblr so <laughs> that, that was exciting and a fun surprise that's really cool. I love the idea of budding scholars publishing a lot of like a lot of scholarship kind of unfolds on Tumblr anyway, like a lot of fan stuff unfolds in the same way. And so I love that. A lot of fan studies and surveys and things that you can then dig into the fandom response and all that. I've been on Tumblr for like yeah. a decade and a half and I'm still terrible at it. So <laughs> yeah, a uh, shout out to that episode we did about Black Fingon, where that survey came from Tumblr. Both exactly, it was on Tumblr, and it the idea for it came forth on Tumblr. Uh, although I'm a huge fan of fan scholarship, and and we do have that. I mean, fan fan fiction and, and fan everything. I, I need to, to specify. A survey done on Tumblr by a fan would not be appropriate for an academic journal because it does not have the review, institutional review for human subjects safety mm -hmm. or training in surveys and a bunch of other stuff. And that may be seen as just gatekeeping, but there are also issues about that. But we don't actually have any of our fan pieces, fan studies pieces don't do survey. What they're doing is analyzing fan fiction and working with what fans do in transformative works and mm -hmm. that's really one aspect of it but i mean there is fan meta fans do scholarship it is using all the tools of scholarship and and a number of people i know who are in graduate school and working and going to become graduate and faculty people are on tumblr these days so yeah that's why it was so great yeah now we're already kind of dipping into this like what what kind of directions do you see queer Tolkien studies moving like now, especially you guys have like such an interesting like historical view of this because you've been working on the anthology so much. But like, have you seen a proliferation of queer Tolkien scholarship coming through? 
I think this overlaps a little bit with surprise in the sense that the Legendarium is so huge. There were at least two pieces in our collection that I remember reading and thinking, I never thought, I thought I knew all the characters, but here's a little corner of queerness I hadn't considered. And so I guess I would really say the kind of scrutiny that queer studies has done in other areas, we are now opening up the whole Legendarium. So I see over the next mm. decade, folks are going to be, yeah, what about this little corner and that little corner? I'm eager to see where those new studies are going to go. Mm. And the intersectionality, of course, that we've been pointing to. Yeah. And it's just nice when you have a collection like this, when you have a volume like this, we're able to encourage authors to submit their work for the call for papers in a subject that before this, there was a tremendous amount of gatekeeping. And, you know, there still is. You know, there are journals out there and there are, of course, Tolkien scholars out there that don't quite feel that queerness, you know, has a place in Tolkien studies and in the legendarium. And the deeper you dive into, let's say, sexuality, they get very uncomfortable connecting Tolkien with anything sexual, right? Like this should just not be. These two things are very, very different. They could not go together. He's not a human being. This is hagiography, hey, you know. <laughs> You know, so, you know, so for our volume to say, hey, you know, there is a place for your scholarship and there will be a place for other people's scholarship, you know, in the future. We have to make a place for our scholarship because we're not always and I don't want to, you know, there are many journals out there. There's some very fine talking journals out there that are very willing to publish queer material, but there are some that aren't. And uh, you really do have to be bold and and determined, uh, I think, in order to, to still to this day to publish queer Tolkien scholarship. Yeah. yeah. So like follow up to that, is there any direction you want to see Tolkien studies go more towards in the future? Well, I think this goes back to what we talked about earlier, issues of critical race, intersectional approaches that take race, gender, sexuality, and, and that is very hard scholarship to do. I know I have tried. I didn't beat my head against the wall many times, but that's, as far as I'm concerned, the most important issue is issues of, of races and racisms. Mm. Uh, Chris was talking about how there are Tolkien scholars who don't want to acknowledge any kind of, of sexuality or queerness, more normative than not. I'd say the defenses in Tolkien studies are even stronger against talking about race and racism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so much so that I see an awful lot of the scholarship that's done as being a denial. That that is, they want to say Tolkien wasn't racist. Look, he wrote this letter to his German publisher, and he said apartheid was bad, and he did do both of those things. But as Verlin Flieger has pointed out, there are many contradictions in Tolkien. So well, you you can't possibly be obliquely referring to that <laughs> book that was quote unquote the first book on Tolkien and race that came out after Demetra Feeney's book, could you? <laughs> but to be, to be fair, actually, and I didn't write any of the reviews for that. Alicia's talking about Robert uh, Stewart's book. Demetra Feeney's book is fantastic, but she only has really one chapter, chapter nine, that deals directly with race. Uh, it is an intellectual history, and she looks at a lot of other stuff. Race is part of it, but not to the extent that Stewart is. Mm. Plus, Stewart's book actually does something very valuable, even though there are some problem areas with it, which is his 
background is the history of French Marxism and, mm -hmm. and European history, not literary studies. And he brings his knowledge of racisms in Europe, blood and soil racism, aristocratic racism, the other types of racism, and even the fact many people don't understand there are multiple types of racism out there. Right. And he deals with that very well in his chapters. The thing he does is he is also trying to defend Tolkien that, you know, Tolkien wasn't as bad as the Nazis and the KKK, therefore he wasn't racist, even though the body chapters engage fully with, look at all these racism issues. And yeah. Right. So it is really, in a sense, that first book completely focused on race. But academic scholarship is always a dialogue. And I predict that Stuart's book will kick off a whole bunch of responses and dialogue. It's <laughs> a very generous way of putting it. I like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah, I, to, to be perfectly clear, I have not read the entirety of the book. I read, I read Demetra Feeney's response to it. And I read the introduction and the conclusion, just so I kind of had a feel of what he was doing. And I'm sick to death of reading people defending Tolkien as, well, he was a man of his time. He he wasn't that bad. I am just I'm, I'm just over it in general. That <laughs> argument also tends to have absolutely no contextualization or grasp of what his time entailed and what being a person of his time entailed and what the, the prevailing attitudes were. Yeah. A lot of that criticism tends to just take our inaccurate backwards view of like what it must have been some number of decades ago that isn't actually grounded in, in the reality. Right. <laughs> like we're, we're the best yeah. it's ever been right now. So it must have been worse back in the day, even though, especially when you're talking about like, conservative religious views towards things like homosexuality is it any better today than it was 20 years ago mm -hmm. i don't think so yeah that's a great point i like the mm -hmm. idea that we're challenging this kind of essentialized version of what mid-20th century britain was like or catholicism i'm not religious myself but the notion that but i grew up in this evangelical setting and the idea that christianity is posed as unified or this kind of one thing. I mean, Tolkien's Christianity is different from many people's, and that's worth exploring or something I'm looking forward to. I would just add that the whole field of linguistic scholarship, I think, would really benefit. There's languages inherently queer. We're talking about gender and this ambiguity of these lexical spheres. And I would love to see those folks who know the linguistic stuff so well to kind of dip into those. So we need to find who that queer linguist, I shouldn't say that, one who knows queerness, queer theory, and does the linguistics could do that work. They needn't be queer themselves. It's a bonus, but you know, <laughs> I love that that language is inherently queer. I love that idea because language transforms and changes over time and is always sort of interrogating itself and also changing how things, what things mean and everything kind of like like there are certain like pieces that fall to the wayside and are lost in time and other things that are preserved and carried forward through very very long stretches of time yeah i oh i love that idea and i too would love to see more 
linguists engage with with queerness in Tolkien because honestly a lot of linguistic stuff kind of goes over my head and I'm like I feel like I'm a, I'm a bad Tolkien fan in that I'm like uh my eyes kind of start glazing over when <laughs> when I kind of start reading some of this so I'm kind of like uh, but I'm kind of like if you add gay into it then maybe I'll pay attention a little bit more <laughs> I mean, we all know there are those far-right folks who would say, you know, your dialect of English isn't standard English and you are uneducated. I'm going to say, when have you pronounced the K at the beginning of the word night for the past, you know, we, none of us has done that for hundreds of years. You're all, we're yeah. all part of the queerness, so get off your high horse. I mean, there are also a bunch of right-wing people who are terrified of pronouns now, just in general. Yeah, they're like... No one, no one ever had pronouns, you know, like, exactly, yeah. Exactly. What? We what need to know less about what pronouns even are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In terms of that sort of linguistic thing, one of my rants, because of course I'm a huge fan of the Oxford English Dictionary. I mean, what, what Tolkien fan is not, is the way in which too much of the scholarship, people just look queer up in the OED and they grab out one of the meanings and then they quote it and go from there and you know okay that's that's legitimate but if you're looking at the oed the entry on the oed for queer is something like fourteen thousand word i i I did a, a whole thing on it the many meanings of queer so looking at the multiple meanings of queer how they changed over time because i mean that's the genius of the oed is to look at historical change over time and the selected quotations that they pick to exemplify the meanings is crying out for analysis on its own. Mm. So if you sort of queer linguistics, I mean, you certainly work with Tolkien's in men and languages, although I, I have the feeling that the Tolkien linguists and the ones who started the field are a little bit tend in that more conservative area of Tolkien studies. Not all of them. Is that perhaps the most under... Biggest understatement of the world, yeah. <laughs> well, I've I've only heard it from only heard it from afar. <laughs> there are at least two of them that are cool. <laughs> okay, but yeah, the the extent to which what the OED shows us about the many meanings of queer and how often that's ignored by people who are just looking for a dictionary definition sort of needs to be done, and mm. that that's something I would like to. See see people doing more of that kind of work i love etymological work just in general we did a one of the tolkien tuesday it's a hashtag that happens on twitter one of them was for fairy as in fairy the place and we ended up doing a, a tweet thread about fairy as slang for gay man so i got to dig into the oed and etymology for that it was so much fun in case someone is listening and does not know this, Tolkien wrote part of the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> yep. Just, I, I try to keep it... Fun fact. Yeah, for people who aren't just like, so stuck up Tolkien's ass. <laughs> <laughs> this is where all of us are, basically. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. I have just been reflecting on Robin's point about really how often in the scholarship and all of that there's there's this instinct to defend tolkien from any you know current or modern criticism or what have you 
And it strikes me that this is the challenge that we're having in fandom as well as in academia is that we get these very, like, frankly, like extremist, like deeply radically conservative viewpoints that are spouted and that we then in even entering into a discussion, like we're constantly in the place of having to refute that extremism and we never really get to the the chance to have the actual interesting conversations, the actual necessary conversations. They're so often drowned out by all the work that we have to do in order to even set the the stage to be able to have those more meaningful conversations. So that's one of the reasons that I'm really excited about this anthology that you're putting together is like this is one of the chances to have the deep and important conversations and cutting through all of the noise that comes before it and going that no we're we're just having this conversation right well great Granton would would say and, and he has said it this about the online uh, response to the far-right extremists and sometimes it's academics and sometimes it's fans that the more attention you give to the far-right extremists and if you link back to them you are helping in their recruiting efforts mm-hmm and a number of the far-right extremists have said out loud they used hoping to recruit young men. It's always about the young men. Mm-hmm. That's why when I did my work on uh, attacks on hoping and diversity that I linked to archives. An archived copy, not to the original site, because of course you have to cite your sources. I also do a corpus analysis, which means I'm not quoting anybody and giving their name spread. I'm analyzing patterns in the I forget how many thousand words I collected for the for the database. And so that's these are methodological things that have to take place. But Craig would support this. No, we're, we're, don't. there are places where one might try and engage with someone on their ideas about coping on a one to one basis. But if you want to. I mean, we, we didn't care. I mean, when we put this together, we didn't care about what what either the far right extremists or some of the more conservative coping scholars might think because we don't have to hell yeah queer studies is a growing field but when we started we were all safely employed now i'm safely retired and <laughs> i have no more fucks to give which is- <laughs> yep doing it on substack yep and we're going to do this because we can because this is what our lives have been and we've been doing i first read Tolkien when i was 10 and that was considered weird. It wasn't considered queer because that word wasn't around in 1965 in any meaningful way, not in Idaho. And, and now I know it's harder with, with fandom, but there is this idea of the more attention you pay trying to rebut these far-right extremists, the more attention they're getting. Mm. And that's a real frustrating part of just a, a far-right strategy generally. I mean, we see this in the U.S. Congress right now, that Ugh. the conversation by default, kind of brings people together if it's you know, the nature of a conversation, which is, I guess, different from a fight. But to kind of raise all this noise and actually shut things down works for the far right. Great. Let's let's stop it all together. Let's, you know, whatever, let's shut down Congress. Let's the tantrums work. And so the notion, I mean, I think you've, you've pointed to this. We love the idea of a book as well. That's the, the conversation is happening with the scholars, with the reader. You can sit calmly and kind of engross yourself in that conversation. The book is not going to be stopped. Yeah. I think it's something we can all be mindful of as 
whether we're engaging in a scholarly way or a fanish way or a pro- professionally or what have you, or just, you know, being out on Twitter as it continues, it's, it's ever crumbling downfall, but accelerating just being mindful. <laughs> it's a definition of accelerationism. <laughs> <laughs> just being mindful of how the ways in which we engage may be counterproductive to the values and goals that we actually hold and how we can engage instead in order to build up the responses that we want instead of feed the trolls. Because I, I, yeah. I have enough tr- trouble feeding myself. I do not mm-hmm. need to feed the trolls. <laughs> yeah, totally. and it, it is important to, in very specific instances, raise awareness against specific people who are doing harmful, abusive things in an effort to keep a community safe. Mm-hmm. However, you have to be really careful about that because if you give these people a molecule of air, it just explodes. Yeah. It's an ongoing conversation on one of my little enclaves on the internet about how to deal with abusive people on Twitter and how to help people who are being abused by them without also just making the situation worse. And there's no easy answer to that, really. But one of the things that I think anywhere that you can do is to create, inspired by the frustration that you feel, to create the thing that you want to see, like this anthology, yeah. like I've definitely written some spite fan fiction. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I can be I can be inspired by spite. Like the podcast. Yeah, like this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty directly, honestly. Pretty, pretty directly. directly. <laughs> yeah, I, I've come to acknowledge in the last few years I'm very readily fueled by spite. And I like a lot of my creativity is fueled by like getting frustrated about something, not wanting to argue about it, and wanting to just go do the thing that I want to see instead. Nice. Great. It's a mantra for life. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh Let's get a little bit more positive. Are there any up and coming scholars, especially any who are featured in your anthology, who you guys are excited about? I want to read more from. Yeah, all of them. All of them? <laughs> I actually did, did a count. And, but like I said, Steve says we're excited about all of them. At the moment, we are looking at having 13 essays. And this isn't our preface and introduction, which we're, we're still messing around with. I think we've written at least five versions of it. <laughs> and we also have a chapter that is a chronological bibliography on Tolkien and alterity to acknowledge the extent to which the scholarship on alterity includes queer scholarship, but is not limited to it. Mm. Because, and hopefully maybe to emphasize the need for intersectionality. Of mm. those 13, as I was counting through them, five or six is by scholars who published before to various degrees. I mean, Christine Larson <laughs> is everywhere in Tolkien studies. Christine. Chris and Steve both have essays in it. And there are other people, Nicholas Burr and his mothers, who are, have, have published. But of the ones we have, seven or eight are by what academia tends to call junior scholars. And, and this is going to be their first uh, academic publication. That's really cool. And a number of them, at least when we started in 2017, were in graduate school. One has started graduate school after getting there as a accepted by us and is looking for it. So what we have is a lot of of the younger scholars, um, both in terms of age and also in terms of where they're at in their academic training and career, 
that's why the anthology reflects the newest and cutting edge things in queer theory. I mean, one of them, of course, was one of the ones most targeted by, by the haters is Dana Peterson Deep Rose's Something Mighty Queer, Destabilizing Cis-Hetero-Amatonormativity in the Works of Tolkien. And I don't know about Chris and Steve, but I was sitting there going, I never heard of this. This is an amazing concept. Dana's presentation was gonzo fantastic. And like I said, the title drew a lot of hatred. Not that anyone actually understood what that was from the title. <laughs> so yeah, we have. I think we're, we're looking at people who will go on to be, I hope, publishing much more and that this is maybe just their first. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, all of them is my answer that I gave already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course. I like the idea that I mentioned before that we're excited that these are voices that will be next to each other, but the fact that we're also reading each other's pieces to various extents. So the notion that we're all kind of, we're building this larger community, we're, all, we're learning new vocabulary from each other. And this is queer theory, we revel in kind of these new, this is not a field that says, oh, we've figured out how the atom works or whatever. This is all about, <laughs> oh, what's this new way of getting at this field that is by its nature cannot be contained or controlled. And so let's find new avenues and paths. And they're, we're all doing it in different ways. Yeah. So I like the idea that, yeah, that this breadth of scholars in these different kind of research areas are all going to be part of this unified voice under the cover. Yeah. And that's, I have to say, that's a real tension in doing medieval scholarship. It's, you know, the medievals loved their categories. It's all about how do we contain and control? And queer theory is all about those boundaries, those borders, those hard and fast decisions don't exist. And so there's a little bit of in my head that I'm constantly working back and forth between saying, how are we holding this together? But there's another part of my brain that says, these pieces don't go together because it's queer theory and we're doing all these different things. And that's yeah, part of the beauty of it too. So you all know yeah. that you're thinking about this too. Well, in speaking to the, the medievalisms of like, I feel like queer theory is also a lot about like exploding sort of hierarchies and the medievalists were all about hierarchy and that's exactly right right and so it's sort of like one of the the big things that really interests me about going deeper into queer theory and also going deeper into medievalism and just like as out of curiosity is like how much more leftist it makes me and also how much more like anarchist it kind of makes me because I'm kind of like these guys were obsessed with hierarchy and (laughs) I'm kind of like, you know, I love sort of seeing that tension between the two and seeing how, how each of them can kind of like, you know, expand those boundaries and explode those boundaries even more, even as we're also trying in queer theory to kind of hone in on sort of accepted like definitions of things or hone in on particular experiences or like very specific experiences you know in addition to these like you said kind of undefinable like the undefinable experience of just of queerness itself you know leah it's fascinating you say that because i'm reminded of that one letter where tolkien's essentially saying anarchy for everyone let's go firebomb whatever this building is that's right that's right (laughs) Yeah, which is a that, very poor paraphrase of that letter, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
that blew, that blew my mind. I sort of think it's an issue when you're talking about, I mean, there are people trained in medieval studies and then there, and the, the medieval history, uh, I collaborated with, taught with, wrote with a medievalist historian who studied the, did the historical stuff. And that means not just the literature, because there really isn't much of the literature from the Middle Ages that survived. And I can't believe uh, when I sat through a, a Kalamazoo thing on the dating of Beowulf or something, which apparently medievalists mm. have fistfights about. <laughs> uh, and it has not resolved that. But I think it's important, and this is something I'm going to be saying at a presentation I'm giving at the Northeast Popular Culture next month. Contemporary medieval scholars are doing all sorts of work with not only gender and sexuality, but race and many medievalists of color. So this idea that many of us have about the Middle Ages, which remember in Europe that we're talking about 400 to 1400 and multiple countries, the Middle Ages being this hierarchical and all this other stuff, and then maybe not. What that, that reflects the state of medieval scholarship at that time. And that has changed. So in terms of and I'm not a medievalist, I'm a postmodernist, but I realize I have to read some of the medieval stuff that's out there, not because I want to talk about Tolkien in that medieval context, but because it's important to know that if you look at contemporary medieval scholarship, as opposed to the state of the medieval scholarship in the 50s and 60s when medievalists started writing about Tolkien, this is not your grandfather's Middle Ages anymore. Absolutely. So there's all sorts of great possibilities out there. But I also think very strongly it was important. Medievalists started the field of Tolkien studies, medieval and folklore scholars, Tom Shippey, Berlin Flieger, Jane Chance. But after Peter Jackson's films hit, you had an explosion. And Demetra Kimi talks about this in her book of scholarship on Tolkien because of the films. And you have a whole lot of people like me. I ran away from my Chaucer undergraduate course in horror, and that's not even older <laughs> medieval stuff. A whole bunch of people doing film, doing adaptation, doing tourist studies, doing queer theories and all that other stuff. And there is queer medieval theory. Tyson Pugh comes up, but I don't work with Tyson Pugh because I'm not a medievalist. I will work with queer theorists like Sarah Ahmed and uh, Adler and all sorts of so queer theories are all over the place as well. It's um, when you ask what I see about future things in Tolkien studies uh, with queer theory, I see it going <laughs> like one of the fireworks over Bilbo's house in multiple directions, huge trails of light, not just we're going to do this. Yeah. Oh, medieval fashion. <laughs> <laughs> I love that image. <laughs> I think it's interesting too the role of fantasy, personal, you know, fantasy when it comes to literary interpretation, right? And that's from the very beginning of literary interpretation. I don't know how far back you want to go. I mean, you know, two thousand years, thousand years at least, but definitely current day, right? That some medievalists, you know, you you can take a look at their interpretations of Beowulf, uh, and you can see how their interpretations, their lens. The, uh, the lens they use is so informed sometimes by a kind of cis hetero paradigm, right? And and their own fantasy, their own desire. One case in point, like so many people try to heterosexualize Beowulf, 
right? Look at any movie on Beowulf, right? Uh, look at any comic book that mm-hmm. deals with Beowulf. And there's always some kind of heterosexual energy. There is zero heterosexual energy around Beowulf in the Beowulf poem. Zero, right? <laughs> and yet, really serious yeah. scholars will promote these very serious uh, interpretations and arguments that, that kind of create this heterosexual energy around him. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that because if they can do it, and they can, then we can do it, right? The queers can do it. And we can say, Mm. well, (laughs) there's nothing wrong with you giving your sort of heterosexual fantasy because interpretation uh, is always a kind of failure in some ways. It's always, you know, it always fails to quite grasp the thing it attempts to to discuss, right? Um, And so go ahead and have your heterosexual fantasy, but we're going to have our queer fantasies too around this right and i think it's exciting to have scholarship that actually literally promotes the fantasy that where the the genres blur you're giving your analytical argument and boom next you're reading some fantasy queer fantasy inserted embedded in the text and then out because really we're just exposing what a lot of scholars have been doing for centuries right is that yes my interpretation and so this is true of beowulf but it's true of tolkien studies true right that what I do, the way I read the text is in part because of my queer desire to see the things this way, <laughs> to see my own world exist in Middle Earth or my own paradigm, my own my own logic. Yeah. I want to jump in here to support, to support Chris's point about the heteronormativity of Beowulf. At one point, I got really carried away and in my graduate gender theory course, our set text, meaning the the work we would apply all the gender theory to analyze was the Seamus Haney translation of Beowulf. And senior scholars, all male in my department, several of them went bonkers. One of them came up to me and said, what are you doing teaching Beowulf in a gender theory course? Beowulf has nothing to do with gender. My medievalist buddy, who by the way was also a Harry Potter fan, was on the sidelines going, go Robin, go Robin, go Robin. (laughs) He said, Beowulf should be taught everywhere. So we did it, and early on in the, one of the graduate seminars, the students who were arguing that any of the, that applying these queer ideas to Beowulf was presentism, that we were putting that on the text. And I said, hmm, okay, that is always a concern in interpretation. Why don't you go away, reread the Seamus Haney, and come in next week with all the textual evidence for Beowulf's heterosexuality? <laughs> They came in the next week and went, there is none. Sorry. <laughs> you can yeah. comb through it every other way. There is none. Yeah. And so what Chris is talking about here, and I'm talking about here, is another thing that tends to upset some people. It is uh, reader mm-hmm. response reception theory. Mm-hmm. It's yep. academy. And it is the author's intentions, if you can even discern them, do not outweigh the reader's active interpretation and all readers will bring different experiences, tools, reading to it. And it's not as easy as anything you say about it is right because that's your opinion, which my students always wanted. It is possible to say you can develop a huge number of very strong arguments about very different interpretations. And that's what, that's what we're doing here. We are bringing in these very strong arguments that are textually based, based around theory, and the transformative readings of a number of our contributors who are queer, as are the editors. 
<laughs> just uh, jumping on my soapbox for one second. You can't reliably discern authorial intent unless you literally Ouija board this person back from the dead <laughs> and have them inhabit your body because anything we are basing our interpretations of their authorial intent on is something that we have read and we have processed through our own brains and colored it how we are going to color it because of our own personal lens. I cannot say that enough. <laughs> I, I would push that further. I think literary scholars would say you could have, and I've had a poet in the room that I brought as a guest speaker and what that person indicates as its authorial intent, we would also say, we don't care. You, That's we, fair. We will not argue. I mean, we will, I don't think you can make the case that you knew exactly what you were doing. You were talking mm. about kind of humanity is bigger. And as, as Robin and Chris are both pointing out, this is bigger than, I mean, I certainly understand the point that you're making, Alicia, but I would say authorial intent mess gets in the way. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were both big on don't look too close at our personal lives because they knew they felt nervous about that. But for a century, we've thrown that off. Literary scholars, we don't care what the author intended to do. We've got the text in front of us that read responses to is yeah, more important. And I will roll up Berlin Flieger's But What Did He Really Mean? published in Tolkien Studies, which makes it harder to get a hold of, and The Arch in the Keystone, where she proves with quote after quote after quote after quote that Tolkien contradicted himself in his letters, in his essays, in various versions of his essays, in his fiction. And anyone who wants to talk about Tolkien's intentionality, uh, if they're not able to take on Berlin Flieger's uh, brilliant explication of it, is going to fail. Because even if you had the Ouija board, that's only Tolkien at one point in his life, you know? That is very true. At the end of his life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It makes perfect sense that Tolkien would become this spokesperson for the far right. He's at the center of what seem to be these super bastions of conservatism. I mean, he's a linguist. He's looking at Beowulf. He's doing medieval scholarship at Oxford. And these are all areas that we all now know are super queer. And so we have a front row seat. There's no way that the far right side is going to win in this discussion. We're just going to watch. The queerness is going to keep coming up. They can defend because strong thinkers already understand past those kind of simplistic arguments that they're using. Yeah, finding out that Oxford was a hotbed of queerness while uh, Tolkien was teaching there was very illuminating to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a future episode, y'all. Well, that's a fun future episode. I was going to say, that would hit Grace's uh, <laughs> history, history nerd buttons for sure. Well, if you don't allow any women into your sanctified <laughs> sanctum, <laughs> what, do you got? what do you expect will happen? <laughs> Something I bring up a lot because we are talking about some of the, the conservative bashing of liberal ideas of Tolkien, but there are left and liberal people who bash Tolkien for being a sexist. And, and that gets complicated, too. That is, they want to make this very simplistic notion. And it's like, but, you know, go read John Ratliff's essay about Tolkien's women students and the fact that when Oxford let women in, the professors, the dons were told they didn't have to teach women if they didn't. They didn't have to work with women if they didn't want to. The women students were very much second class. Tolkien worked with women. I mean, he didn't quite understand why they maybe couldn't go on and develop professional lives like his male students. And that's, that's on him. Um, but a lot of men don't understand that. 
and don't want to talk about systemic issues, but you know, Eowyn. And, and I'm going to put a plug in here for David Craig's Queer Lodgings, which I know you all know. It is one of the few queer essays that deals with Frodo and Sam and male characters and also Eowyn. That is, as far as I'm concerned, hands down one of the best interpretations of Eowyn's characterization. And the fact that Craig understands that these gender roles interact with each other and what happened in Britain after World War II affected gender roles for men and women. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I do have another question. And it, this is a question that I think we've already answered a dozen times tonight. We answer it every time we're talking about this topic. But I want to be able to pose it to each of you to just sort of like put a button on it or, or to delve deep into it. And that question is, in your opinion, why does it matter to engage with Tolkien through the lenses we've discussed today? Why is it important that scholarship extends to these lenses? <laughs> That's an excellent question. I think we are as queer scholars biased in this, but I feel like queer scholarship is, has been able to take the best of gender theory, race theory. I guess I'm thinking of areas like semiotics. I mean, these are, they build over the decades and really help one just become a better reader and thinker about mm. how texts work, how language works, how authors work, how literature works. So the idea that I, don't, I think in every liter, literature class that I teach, there's some queer theory, along with other kinds of theories. But to just say these are ways of just making you understand the world more fully and the complexities. I mean, challenging binaries is, I think, critical thinking 101. So, mm -hmm. but again, we're biased. I'm sure the other <laughs> other theories like are biased. Just for people who might not know, would you like to explain what uh, semiotics is? So, so the, the study of signs, I mean, in some ways starts with one of the most basic kinds of binaries of here's the, the signifier and the signified, what we're trying to point to in the world. I think as a grad student, it was maybe the, the first stuff that interested me, this disconnect between when I pronounce the word tree and I then see this thing outside, this big, well, what I say isn't that thing. It can never be that thing. And how is the disconnect? That got me into linguistics. And I think that's, yeah, what got me interested in Tolkien. But it, it's all about challenging. I mean, those are the simplistic ideas. We probably all know folks that would appeal to, well, here's the dictionary definition of something. I mean, that's not critical thinking at all. But how has a word changed over time? How is it that, I mean, we, we understand dictionaries are written by how language is used. It's not this prescriptive kind of thing and and i think most people do understand that but we want everyone to get to that point to understand yeah that's the complexities so semiotics the study of signs and also encoding and decoding meaning yeah right exactly and i'm sure yeah i'm sure other scholars in other areas would say well it all comes together in our these are the fights we have at universities all the time. My biologist <laughs> friends are convinced everything is biology. Everything's biology. And yeah, yeah I want to uh -huh. be at those fights. I, I think that they're, it's kind of hilarious. There's definitely some queerness in biology too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I was going to say, when I think about what we're attempting to do, I think we're attempting to make a, to offer a more complete picture um, because just so much out there, really, it's just bizarre how sometimes people just shy away from fantasy is a, a form of speculative fiction in a way, right? It merges from that and science fiction, but it's also a form of medievalism. So it's a form of like reconstituting the past and imagining the past. Many people want to re to reconstitute or re and reimagine the past as as not queer, right? <laughs> and so I think that's why they get pissed off when they're like, "Oh my God, wait a minute, that uh, you know these medieval like looking hobbits, they can't be multicultural and multi you know in various colors and you know uh, and queer and like we don't want to imagine that kind of past." And so they try to create a non queer past when the past was so queer. The one example I think I'd like to I give is that. People will talk about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis going to the Eagle and Child Inn in Oxford and, and, and discussing their work with the other Inklings. Maybe they'll talk about how their nickname for it was the Bird and Baby. But will they talk about, let's see, the, the and it comes, of course, from a crest, uh, a heraldic crest. But the heraldic crest with the Eagle and Child is a depiction pretty much of Zeus and Ganymede, right? And so this idea of this father, this fa all-father God who swoops down and picks up this young man because he's super attracted to him, right? He's, and falls in love with this young man. And so he takes him, right? That is the burden, baby. That is the eagle and child story, right? And so few people want to hear that when they think about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis at this inn. But, uh, you know, and why? Like, you know, it just boggles the mind, right? We have to remind people that, that they knew the story of Ganymede. They all knew it. And they knew what the burden baby slash eagle and child meant, right? So projects like ours are just sort of trying to complete the picture, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's no, just it's just that eagle was just carrying off a poor innocent baby that it wanted to eat it. That's that's what that's that's what that is all about. What are you talking one of, about? One of those original signs now sits in the kilns, which is owned by a conservative Christian group that holds regular Christian writing oh. workshops there. And I've been there a few times and they're all of their heads have just exploded with Christmas story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is also what the point that I'm getting at too, of like, if you try to, to just gloss over, you know, so-and-so was a, a man of his time and your understanding of the the cultural conceptions at that time do not include that this man of his time was meeting at this pub that referred to this like very queer story and that ganymede was a terminology that was used within the queer community to to explicitly point to like queer people queer men in particular and that this was like as much of a, a understood code as, you know, being a friend of Dorothy in, in a later decade and, and things like that. If your understanding of that historical context is lacking, it's very easy to to create the past as this blank slate that you can just impose your own views upon. But in reality, like, these people who are meeting here have this understanding yeah. of the place where it is. Right, right. They must. I'd, I'd sort of like to pick up on what, Chris and Steve both said in terms of some our goals and why we think this is important to do other than you know, this is what we do. And my take these days, post-COVID, post-Tolkien in diversity, 
I hope eventually it will be post-Trump, um, <laughs> is that from your lips. what has been called the culture war in the United States, and it's been going on since the 60s, is actually a political war. Mm-hmm. And we need to acknowledge that. That is this issue, this conflict over what is culture, what is worthy of studying, I mean, they are trying to criminalize librarians and teachers in Florida and, and Texas and some of the other states. Or if you let anything out, that any sort of book that meets this definition of, of badness, whether in terms of queer or race. So this, this issue of representation, and as someone who grew up in Idaho, northern Idaho, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and issues of representation and Tolkien was so important to me for so many years and I was told in so many ways I shouldn't even be reading it. It is something that is a part of that. But I mean, my bias, what what Steve says, I always deal with things by reading about them. This is how I, I learn about everything. I think it's sort of an office thing. So for me, having a book and a publication that's fairly relatively accessible for an academic publication doing what this is doing is this is why I'm still doing my scholarship after I retired Hmm. Uh, my partner is not doing scholarship she's having a whole lot of fun doing other things (laughs) I'm still doing the scholarship because it's important yeah we're doing this podcast and you know we joke about how this is sort of our you know we we do we do scholarship you know in our spare time outside of our our day jobs just because we like to you know and that's something that I think we've talked about before in that a lot of folks on the far right get really pissed about is that we're doing this stuff and we're also still somehow existing in other spheres and others in other places, not just in Tolkien. It's like this is this is part of our our whole being, basically. And I, I don't know that makes a lot of people really, really upset. And it sort of makes a lot of people upset we're doing this like in our we're doing this in our spare time because it's important so yeah yeah no, you're doing an amazing thing i mean this political fight that robin points to you're in the center of it and you're getting pushed back i mean i'm not telling you anything you don't already know because you're doing absolutely the best work so. oh thank you so much hey, thank you for saying that <laughs> and yeah and thank you guys for for your work and for putting this anthology together for so many years i i really think that it's going to be so valuable for a lot of people and it'll be so nice to uh cite a book that's not perilous and fair <laughs> oh man yeah Love perilous and fair but <laughs> oh it's a great book it'd be nice like to have, to have more. a lot of books to cite yes <laughs> yeah we're, we're, all, we're all queer and we don't like to choose okay we like to have lots of <laughs> options yeah, we're all by. We all we all want to have more than one thing. But yeah, I really feel like this will be, like you said, like a really lovely a, a stepping stone and also a, a push at those the boundaries, you know, kind of breaking through some of those some of those walls. It's really important work. And uh, I feel that very, very deeply down in my bones. So thank you guys so much for for all of your work. Yeah, I second Leah's thank you. And also, I want to take a moment to answer the question that I posed to you and of why it matters to me that you're doing this. I think it matters immensely to have anthologies like this, to have work like this, that 
new and upcoming scholars or scholars who are coming back into the field who do hold queer identities, who do hold marginalized identities, have things to look at and say, yes, here's validation of the thing that I know. I know that I belong here, but here is validation of that thing. Here is a path that the rest of us can continue to follow and build upon. Here is the framework that is being built and we get to continue building on. So thank you so much for the work that you are doing to establish this and and to lay the groundwork and build upon what already exists, but build us in new directions. Thank you. I love that now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We all agree. We do. Well, one of the things that's so amazing about Philippine fandom is how many of the fans read the scholarship. Yes. And arguably, if you've been reading Tolkien and you get into reading all the stuff that Tolkien wrote, especially in the Middle Earth, you're already used to reading scholarship in theory, so why not? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I was so happy when you guys invited us on. It's like, yes, this will we'll get the news out to people who might not have realized it. Yes. Yeah, I have said um, on multiple occasions that Silmarillion fanfic writers and cosplayers are so knowledgeable about Tolkien they can just like cite things off the top of their head that I'm like how do you even know that that's like deep in volume nine of home my dude what are you doing (laughs) yeah it's scary it's It's so impressive and almost all of the Silmarillion fanfic writers and cosplayers I know are queer and I feel like they will greatly enjoy this anthology because you know queer people exist and we read Tolkien and we have thoughts <laughs> we have some great chapters on yeah. Silmarillion pieces on characters. Yes, that's exciting. I'm so, I'm so excited for this. You guys, I'm just so excited. Yeah. Well, we're thinking, yeah, what happens? Look, we're looking forward to volume two. Maybe we get another season of Rings of Power, a new version of Lord of the Rings, more queerness. Oh, man. New readings. <laughs> There's a lot more to look at. Okay, I'm just getting too excited now. <laughs> That's kind of a monkey's paw situation, but yeah. <laughs> perhaps. My, my question, Steve, because you brought this up the other day, do you see yourself editing volume two? Because I, I have to tell you right <laughs> off, I'm, I, I don't see myself doing a sequel to it. Uh, various reasons. Well, maybe, well, oh, Chris maybe. is up for it. Do it, do it. Still <laughs> convinced. Well, yeah. Once Robin sees the huge windfall that comes from this, she'll think again, and she'll think, right. Oh. I, I, right. I have this, and I have the races anthology that also has due dates in 2024. And after that, I am by gosh going to turn my atheist, animists, and agnostics project into a book. Oh, yes. Nice. So yes. That, that has to come first. So I could be a consultant or a reader if you guys go and, and do this. But, you know, I think you ought to get Sarah Brown to be your your third editor if you like uh, threesomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you guys are already doing nothing. We, Sarah and I are already doing a, we're co-authoring the race, gender, and other in Tolkien's Legendarium book that we're putting out together. So there's that. I am slowly working nice. on gazing queerly, which is like a look at Tolkien's art illustrations, looking queerly at Tolkien's art illustrations or illustrations by others oh, on Tolkien's that art. Great. So there's a lot going on in the future. 
Yes. So it, looking at other people yeah. illustrating Tolkien's, Tolkien's art and art also and then other people's other artists as well on Tolkien. Yeah. I, I feel like I don't need to point Ooh, you towards no, Donato Giancola. One of my like long term goals is I want him to do a painting of uh, silver gifting for me. I want it so bad, and I want it just as homoerotic as that picture of Frodo, Gollum, and Sam. Right, right. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, beautiful. (laughs) It would be amazing. Well. As we're kind of wrapping up, we're kind of already kind of getting into it, but what else would you like our listeners to know about in terms of your work? Um, is there anything else that you would like to talk about with what you're working on or what's coming up? And is there anything that you guys would like to plug in addition to the anthology to our listeners? Yes, please. Let me know how large of a new bookshelf I need to build. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'd like to encourage. Well, I'm the area chair of the Tolkien Studies area at Popular Culture Association, and their conference is in late March in 2024. The submissions are open. Alicia is yes. going to submit a proposal. She's been she's been there before. It's great. And I talk about it all the time. <laughs> Which city is it in this year? Chicago. That's Chicago. what I thought. I believe it's on Chicago, my birthday, yeah. so perhaps I need to give myself a birthday present of attending. So if if people are interested. Like I said, we're, we're, we'll be having sessions, and really the conferences are where the newest stuff happens. For example, when we sent out the call for papers in 2017, we had two paper sessions at the 2018 Popular Culture, Queer Tolkien 1 and Queer Tolkien 2. And not all, but most of the people who presented there are in the anthology. So, and, and we'd cool. always, always be open for more. And Chris... Part of the reason he can't come to pop culture very much is his University of Vermont Tolkien conference is like always a week right. off pop culture, which is tough. But tell him about oh, you're your awesome. you're, you're, you're so good. at You're better at plugging it than I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, um, the University of Vermont, I've been organizing a Tolkien conference t- since 2004 when we had our first symposium in 2004 with Michael Drought and Jane Chance. And well, those are the two out of and Matt Dickerson, actually, from Middlebury. Um, and every year we we've had amazing keynote speakers from Verlin Flieger and 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 uh, Tom Shippey and Jane Chance and many many others and some of them right here with Robin Reed for example as a keynote speaker. So yeah, we've been going strong, and this April is our twentieth anniversary. Wow! Uh, wow! Yeah, yeah. Doctor Sarah Brown as our keynote. So very excited. Yeah. So. Wonderful. So just to reiterate, we are still doing work on this volume. So that's part of the project. Of the stuff we're doing, I'll just quickly add a project of mine strays away from Tolkien, but is also, but is still clear. I'm working on the opening day attractions at Epcot in 1982 as queer, as queer narratives. Tim is going to be so fucking upset he missed this recording. (laughs) Tim's obsessed with Disney. He worked at Epcot (laughs) as a professional Canadian. (sighs) oh that's amazing i'm gonna have to tell him well i mean he'll hear it when he's editing this (laughs) a treat and he'll be so upset (laughs) (laughs) sorry editing tim (laughs) (laughs) uh 
Yeah, that sounds great. That's fantastic. Yeah. So thank you all again for such a wonderful conversation. We've been saying it all all evening, but we're so excited for this to come out and we're so excited for all of your other projects as well. There's there's so much goodness to come in Tolkien. It's a really exciting time to be a Tolkien a Tolkien nerd and an academic Tolkien nerd as well. <laughs> so so which of us should do the outro, do you think? I always like to have Alicia do it because Alicia's so good at it. <laughs> yeah, you do, I don't you? So, I like to do nose so good at it. I don't like doing the outro because I mess it up. Uh, before we do that, though, are there any social media things like Robin, your Substack, yeah. stack, anything like that, that you want a chance to plug also? Uh, go ahead yeah, and thank you. put them in here. Yeah, the, the Substack, stack, uh, which I think you guys have, because that's where I decided I was going to put a whole bunch of stuff that I wanted to get out there not have to wait for peer review uh, scheduling because as you see with the anthology uh, peer reviewed scholarship but not the fastest <laughs> so yeah we're, we're having a lot of fun over there and I also although I love PCA and have been doing it for for a long time I'm hoping I have an, a virtual conference because one of the things I think that's most important for Tolkien studies but academia in general is to make academic conferences more accessible in the ongoing pandemic and what the universities are pulling. So I have a virtual conference project there. So people who know of conferences like uh, the Mythopoeic and other virtual conferences or hybrid conferences, I, I want people to send me that information so I can put it up there so we can circulate it to people. Thank you. I have no social media stuff to plug. Thanks for that opportunity. <laughs> I barely remember my Facebook password. Yeah. I'd say a wise choice, yeah. probably. <laughs> it's so much more done your without choice. it. Honestly. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. All right. Please leave us a rating wherever you listen to us or on Facebook. We're getting pretty close to being able to uh, show up a rating on our Facebook page. Please like, share, and subscribe. You can find us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or you can stream our episodes directly on Zencaster. That's uh, Zencaster.com slash Queer Lodgings, a Tolkien podcast with hyphens in between all of those words. You can also find us and stream our episodes on QueerLodgings.com, which is our sort of still newish website where you can find all of our resources that we mentioned in episodes. This one's going to be a bit of a heavy lift transcripts on our older episodes and all kinds of other goodies too. You can find us on Facebook at queer lodgings, Twitter for right now at uh, at Twitter, not X at (laughs) queer underscore lodgings. And we have now joined blue sky uh, at the behest of some of our Twitter fans. We are there at Queer Lodgings, or you can send us an email at queerlodgingspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all. Bye. Thank you so much. So excited for everything. I can, I'm still hearing a bit of an echo, but it's not as bad. Chris, go ahead and talk because I think I picked it up the most okay. when you were talking. Okay, testing, 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 testing. Tolkien, queer Tolkien, queer, queer, queer Tolkien. <laughs>